glad you're here this morning. Thank you for joining us with, uh, for Resurrection Weekend. Um, we're glad to um, be able to share this experience with you. And we have got a long way to go before the sun sets. You guys ready to go to work? We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about the power that holds the universe together. Maybe that ought to interest us. Are you ready? Are you ready to go to work? <clears throat> better. That's better. Come on, second service. You've been, you got to carry me as on eagle's wings. Let's <clears throat> jump into the text. We have been telling the story of Genesis, that God creates the world and sets it in motion and, and offers a particular way for it to function, and then asks people to trust the way that he says it ought to go. There's a whole bunch of people that don't, <clears throat> and it doesn't go well for them. And then we have a guy that will trust God's story. His name is Abram, and God begins to work with him to unfold what it means to be God's man. And last week, we talked about uh, Genesis 16, 17, and 18, and we talked about the power struggle, power struggle between Sarah and Hagar, and how each one, as they got the opportunity to be the leader, mismanaged the power, and then God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then the next story is about Sodom and their misuse of power. And God, in this covenant, with circumcision brings the high low and the low high. And what God says to Abraham is, if you're going to be the kind of guy that I'm going to use, then you're going to have to be willing to level the playing field with people. Not that you do away with authority, but that you do away with the fact that people are valuable based on what they produce. That is a radical shift in the ancient world. And so then there's a few more stories, and they're weird, let's be honest. Some of them you read and you're like, eh. Check it out. Then there's these next two stories that we want to look at. Genesis chapter 21 and chapter 22. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you on the front end is that these stories are laid side by side for a reason. If we're careful to note, the story of Hagar is out of order chronologically. And it's like, it doesn't make any sense. And we'll try to point this out as we go. It doesn't make any sense where it's placed unless you understand that the Jews pull stories out of chronology all the time and move them into the rightful place. But they will always do this in order to make a bigger point. So the question is, why are these stories side by side? What's the point that's being made? And what can we learn from that? You guys ready to do this? Come on, I gave you another chance. You guys ready to do this? Yeah. All right, good, good. All right, so Hagar has Ishmael. We know that Ishmael is 13 years old when Isaac is born. When he's weaned, it says that Ishmael starts to pick on Isaac. He starts to make fun of him. I don't know exactly what that is, means, but he starts to make fun of him. Sarah becomes concerned that uh, there's going to be a problem between them, that Ishmael's going to hurt Isaac in some way. And so she goes to Abraham and says, we've got to do something. So Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert, and the desert is hot. It's miserable hot out in the desert. In fact, I was just looking at the places that we're going to go in Israel in three weeks. I'm taking a tour uh, over to Israel. I was looking at some of the places that we're going to go. It's going to break 100 there this week. We're still wearing jackets. I just can't wait. I can't wait because by the time we get there, it is going to be wretched hot. I love it. It's hot in the desert. And they go out into the desert and they're wandering around. And Hagar sets her son under a bush and then walks away, which we go, 
What? We'll get there. Let's pick up the story in chapter 21, and we'll see if we can't unveil some things. When the water in the skin was gone, <coughs> she put the child under one of the bushes. Now, here's the deal. If this story's chronologically correct, he's at least 15 or 16. He can get up and walk away. So this is, this is a problem if it's chronological. And then she went off and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. I don't know how far that is. A uh, hundred yards, maybe? I don't know how far you can shoot a bow, especially not in the ancient world. I don't know how far you can shoot a bow. I know for me, when I go bow hunting, it's never more than 10 yards because that's what hunters do. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. I've never, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so about a bow shot away, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. Now, question. Mom's in the room. Anybody have a problem with this part of the story? That she sat her child down in the most desperate time of need and walked away so it could die. Any moms in here have an issue with that? Yeah. No mom. No parent would do that. But especially not a mom. Like That's... Weird. And then she goes off and cries out. She didn't show up for her kid, but she's all about herself. She's, wants her, she's crying out for her own self. And God heard the voice of the boy. You should probably underline that if you're taking notes. God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. It's repeated. And any time a phrase is repeated in a story in Hebrew, you need to pay attention to it. Because this is how they connect ideas. This is how they emphasize thoughts. This is how things get worked together in the Hebrew world. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Interesting that the story starts with an emphasis on Hagar, and as soon as she bails out on her son, the, fo the focus, the emphasis becomes all about the boy. Some observations that I would make about this story at this point. Number one it's weird that she bails out on her son in his most desperate time of need, especially after God has already promised her that he was going to be a great nation. Now, the question is, did she believe that promise? Doesn't look like it. Okay, God, I guess you were joking. We're going to die out here, right? The other thing that I would make note of is that once there's a, there's a crying out to God, God hears the voice of the one who's being oppressed by the situation, not the one who bailed out. And God shows up because God always shows up. But maybe we don't. Hagar doesn't show up. Now let's leave that story for a minute. We're going to jump into chapter 22. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. To which we go, weird. 
Couple of observations at this point. Number one, Abraham never wrestles with God about it. He never asks why. And number two, he never asks how. Well, why not? Why aren't these two questions part? Because to me, I would think that would be some things that I would want to know. Like, are you kidding me? Especially, this is the child that Abraham has waited 100 years for. This is the child through whom God says, I'm going to bless the whole world. This is the child of the promise. And you want me to kill him? What? A couple of thoughts about this, and then we'll get into the text. Abraham is part of an ancient Mesopotamian culture. What that means is all of the gods that he's been exposed to all require child sacrifice. So he doesn't need to ask why. Of course, this is what the gods do. They ask for child sacrifice. And number two, he doesn't need to ask how because he's already familiar with how. So let's... They start on their journey, and let's pick up the story in Genesis 22. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I, will, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, which means apparently his son has aged some between the stories. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, now before we read on, put yourself in the position of Abraham. He is about ready to stick a knife in the chest of his only child. The one that he's waited his whole life for. The one that was a miracle. The one that was evidence that God shows up. The one that is supposed to be the blessing for the whole nation. He's about to stick a knife in his chest. If you're Abraham, how do you feel? What are you thinking about? See, I would suggest that Abraham is thinking about anything other than what he's about to do. He's distracting himself, kicking rocks, looking at birds up in the sky, and he's trying to fill his mind with the fact that this inevitable reality just can't happen yet. It just can't. How do we do? What? I don't understand. What do we do? Just what? Anything. Rocks, birds, football, baseball, I may, whatever they're ancient world version of that was. Um, camel skin soccer. I don't know. Like, I don't know what their game was. I don't know what their game was. But anything other than what he's about to do. And his son cries out to him, Dad. Look what Abraham does. And he said, here I am, my son. Say, Hanani. This is the Hebrew phrase that means here I am. Abraham, in his son's greatest hour of need, shows up. Now think about this. Let's read on. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, the thing that blows Abraham away in this experience I'm going to make this observation, isn't that God delivers Isaac or that they come back down the hill together. That's not what blows him away. What blows him away is that God provided a ram for the sacrifice. That's, what, that's the name that he gives God. I'm going to give God a new name. Why? Because he just blew my mind with the fact that we have a God who provides. 
while the rest of the world's gods take, we have a God that shows up and provides. Now, anytime that you see uh, two stories side by side like this, that are, those are eerily similar, parents and children and, and their children in need and what happens, but it's different. Anytime that we see this, we ought to start thinking maybe these stories are connected. They are. Good news, you were thinking correctly. I knew you were. I knew you were. So let's look at five similarities between these stories. Number one, Hagar starts with early the next morning. Abraham starts with early the next morning. Number two, Abraham sets supplies on Hagar's shoulders. Abraham sets supplies on Isaac's shoulders. Number three, Hagar puts his boy under the brush. Abraham puts a boy on or over the brush. Number four, Hagar looks up to see a well. Abraham looks up to see a ram. Number five, Hagar's story ends with a covenant. Abraham's story ends with a covenant. Now, any one of these things by themselves is like, meh. But all five of them together says, we've got to take a look at these stories side by side. And in fact, what we would observe is, literary structure-wise, both stories are a chiasm. And the center point of the Abraham-Isaac chiasm, guess what it is? Here I am. Am. Why is that statement so important to God? I want to show you some examples because it seems as if what's going on when God uses somebody is that the willingness to show up for the person is central to God's willingness to work with them. Look at what Abraham says in Genesis 22, 1, the beginning of this story. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said... Hanani, here I am. At the end of the story, right before the, the ram, when the ram shows up, look at the next passage, verse 11. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, to which all of us go, no way, right? Because you know exactly what he's talking about. Why is it such a big deal that his name gets repeated? Let me mess with your heads just a little bit because this is Bible geek stuff and I'm, I get excited about it and I'm preaching and you're not. All right. This happens seven times in the Bible. Four times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. Four times in the Old Testament, God says it. Three times in the New Testament, Jesus says it. All of those times, every single time when someone's name is repeated, they get a radical shift in purpose identity and mission. Their purpose, identity, and mission change. So anytime that we see this, God is about ready to radically do something new with a person. And it all hangs on this one phrase, Hanani, here I am. God's going to show up and do something radically different in the world, and he's inviting them to partner with him, but they've got to be willing to show up. Let me show you some more examples. Genesis 31. This is Jacob, who, by the way, also gets his name repeated and says Hanani, but I didn't put that verse up. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Exodus 3, when Moses is out shepherding the sheep out in the middle of the desert, he sees a bush on fire. And the thing that blows his mind about the bush on fire is not that it's on fire. The thing that blows his mind about the bush is that it's not being consumed. Read the text. It's a whole other sermon. Like, you should be like, whoa. 
That's interesting. Okay. When the Lord saw that, it, saw that he turned aside to see, Moses called to him, or aside, let me start over. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am, Hanani. Moses' identity is about to get radically shifted. He moves from failure sheep herder out in the middle of nowhere to deliverer of God's people. First Samuel chapter 3. This is a fascinating story, by the way. The Lord called to Samuel and he said... Four times God calls to Samuel in this story. And he says, Samuel, and he, every time he wakes up and says, I'm here. But he thinks it's Eli, the high priest. And so he goes in and wakes up Eli the first time. Eli said, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed and he hears it again. And he goes back and he's like, Eli, I, said, I heard you say it. And he's like, go back to bed. Stop waking me up. And then he goes uh, and he hears it again and he goes back and Eli recognizes, okay, if this is something that keeps happening to you, this is going to be, this has got to be God calling you. He says, so Samuel, the next time that God speaks to you, you pay attention. And then God comes to him and says, Samuel, Samuel. Boom. Once he knows that it's God, God shows up and radically changes his destiny. Isaiah chapter 6, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Hanani, here am I, send me. In Acts chapter 9, there's this guy named Ananias that lives in Damascus, and Saul had been on the Damascus road and had heard this crazy statement. What was it? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Come on. His identity was going to be radically shifted from Christian killer to Christian evangelist. Like, that's kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know this, but you're sitting in this room because of this story. He goes to Damascus. God comes to Ananias and says, I, want, I need you to go talk to him. And Ananias is like, no, but... Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Hanani, here I am. This is a prerequisite for God using people. And the difference maker when God shows up in what happens in the world is not whether or not God showed up. It's whether or not we will. Why does this matter so much to God? Well, I want to I throw something out to you. A lot of years later, after the Abraham story, there's a guy that's writing about it that's reflecting back on the story itself. And he makes some observations that I think are particularly interesting for us to pay attention to. Hebrews 11. By faith... Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had, been, who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was, even, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Do you understand that being able to stand in tragedy, mess, hard circumstances and saying, God, show up 
And when God shows up, you say, I'm here. That kind of faith comes from who you really believe your God is. Abraham has a particular understanding about God that allows him in the midst of terrible tragedy to stand in and say, God, I believe you will show up and I'm not leaving here until you do. And when God shows up, he says, here I am. Because God is going to show up. He is going to show up. The question is, will we? Now, question for you. Do you believe that God did a miracle in raising Jesus from the dead? Be careful how you answer that question. Matthew chapter 14, we have this really interesting story about Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, right? And, they, and they, they bring up this little kid. Everybody's hungry. There's lots of people there. Everybody's hungry. And they bring up this little kid that has five loaves and two fish, which if you think about it is a bit of a pig. That's a bit of a too large lunch for a child. Five loaves? Five? You need five loaves of bread? When I introduce you to Dr. Atkins, I, I just... Five loaves of bread? It's a little intense, dog. You're needing the carbs too much. <laughs> Send him to CR or something. Um, <laughs> chill out. It was a joke. All right. So uh, he feeds these 5,000 men plus women and children, and he has 12 basketfuls of bread left over which is a whole other conversation for another day. Now, the question that I have with this is, do the disciples believe that Jesus did a miracle? Be careful how you answer that. Because I want to read for you the next story, the very next story, the very next scene. Matthew 14 Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, you know, like you do. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, did the disciples believe that Jesus did a miracle by feeding the 5,000 people? What difference does it make if it doesn't change anything? Their very next opportunity to stand in confidence that God has the power to take care of them, they freak out. Do you believe that God did a miracle in raising Jesus from the dead? 
What difference does it make if it doesn't change anything? We can talk about the power of resurrection all day long, but if it doesn't filter into our life, what difference does it make? Who cares if God shows up if we don't? Who cares what God's capable of doing if in our lives we won't let him work? It doesn't make any difference. And I would invite you to consider the possibility that part of the struggle in your life is due to the fact that you expect God to do everything and you don't have to do anything. But that's not the way relationship works. God is waiting for people to say, God, this is crazy and I don't know what you're gonna do. I feel like you may even have to raise him from the dead, but regardless of what you do, here I am. I'm available to you, whatever you want. Whatever story you're trying to tell in the world, I've never seen it before, I don't understand it, I don't get it, I don't know how to do anything about this, but God, here I am. Are you willing to go there? Now we're gonna do something a little bit different this morning than we normally do. We're gonna move through our implications before we move to communion. And I wanna work through four implications, and maybe there's lots more for you, maybe. Uh, maybe you're like, I can't wait for this to be over. Uh, that's all right. Uh, but I want to work through four implications that I think are particularly significant. Implication number one, God shows up. God shows up. And he is with us and he is for us. And I would suggest that that is particularly significant because if we're going to be able to weather the storms of our life well, we're going to have to stay in the confidence that God is going to show up. And if he isn't, then why fight? Why hang in there? God shows up and he is with us and he is for us. Next implication might be this. If you believe that the resurrection is true, then no one is beyond its reach. No one. No matter how far, no matter how crazy, no matter how ridiculous the circumstances, no one is beyond the reach of the power of the resurrection. No one. Implication number three. I must live a life that reflects the presence of God. I have to be the kind of person that when God shows up, I'm able to see it and point it out. I have to be willing to stand in the crazy situations in life and not panic. I have to be willing to go home and actually act like Jesus in my family, with my spouse, with my children. I have to be willing to actually walk this out at work. I have to be somebody who reflects the power of God in my life because if it doesn't change anything in me, then what difference does it make? Last implication. Would people say of you that you are a person who shows up? Or would they say other things? I would just invite you to consider the possibility that God's been showing up in your neighborhood, in the lives of the people that you've been praying for. And he's there and he's working and he's waiting for you to show up too. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.